Welcome to the Summit for Wellness podcast, where we help you climb to the peak of your health. And now, here is your host, Brian Carroll. Welcome to episode 31 of the Summit for Wellness podcast. I am your host, Brian Carroll, and today's episode is brought to you by TickReport.com. Now, I am not a direct affiliate with them, but I do think tick testing centers are important, especially for the topic that we will be discussing today, which is Lyme disease. And typically, we contract Lyme disease from little buggers like ticks. So these testing facilities allow you to send in a tick if you find one on your body, and they can test it to see what kind of pathogens they are carrying. And since I've already told you what we will be discussing, I have a guest named Darren Ingalls. He is a naturopathic physician, and he grew up on the East Coast where ticks are typically found. We do have them here on the West Coast, but not as prevalent as the East Coast. And so he knows a lot about ticks, a lot about Lyme disease. He actually has Lyme himself. So he is going to discuss a lot of the treatment tactics that he has used with himself and patients to be able to keep the symptoms at bay and to help people get back to their daily lives because Lyme is one of those nasty diseases that can completely wreak havoc on your body. So let's go ahead and listen in to my conversation with Dr. Darren Ingalls. Dr. Darren Ingalls is a naturopathic physician based out of Connecticut and California. He is the author of The Natural Pharmacist, Lowering Cholesterol, and the author of Natural Treatments for High Cholesterol. He has an upcoming book called The Lyme Solution, a five-part plan to fight the inflammatory autoimmune response and beat Lyme disease. Thank you, Dr. Darren, for coming on. Oh, thanks, Brian. Thank you for having me. Now, I know that you had been diagnosed with Lyme disease, so can you talk about your background and what brought you to the point of having Lyme disease? Uh, sure. Well, I, I had actually just finished my training at Bastyr University and I'd moved to Connecticut after my residency. And after working there for about 18 months, I uh, had decided to open up my own practice. And about three weeks before I opened my own practice, I started getting uh, very high fever, headache, joint pain, numbness, tingling. Uh, I felt very acutely ill, and uh, I had had meningitis when I was in college, so I thought I had meningitis again. And I was on my way to uh, get ready to go to the hospital, and I discovered a big bullseye rash on the back of my leg, which I hadn't previously seen. So <laughs> once I saw the bullseye rash, you know that's kind of a telltale sign of Lyme disease. And uh, I went to the urgent care center, told them I had Lyme disease. Uh, they didn't believe me until I showed them the rash. But uh, once they saw that, they knew. And I did the standard, you know, 21 days of doxycycline. And after four days, I, I felt great. I really didn't have any of the symptoms anymore. But when I opened my practice, you know, I was the doctor, the receptionist, the, uh, you know, the everything. So I was working 10, 12-hour days, and after about eight months of you know running the show, I started to get some uh, numbness and tingling in my hands again. I started to get back pain again, and I knew that I was basically relapsing. And this is you know the dead of winter in Connecticut, so uh, we don't typically have a lot of ticks at that time of year. 
So, you know, I knew I was relapsing and uh, I started treatment again. And this time it didn't work. And after 21 more days of doxycycline and I had no improvement, I switched antibiotics to something different and that didn't work. And really spent the next, you know, seven to eight months of trying various antibiotic regimens that, that didn't help me at all. And in fact, I felt worse and worse. It started to have an impact on my gut function. I was in pain every day. I wasn't, you know, uh, my energy was terrible. Uh, I was still able to function and go to work, but really physically was not feeling well. So I had heard about a doctor in New York City named Dr. Zhang, and he had treated several of my patients uh, quite successfully. He's a, a Chinese uh, medical doctor, uh, or a medical doctor trained in China, and he works in New York as an acupuncturist. But I saw him, and he has a, a series of Chinese herbal medicines that uh, he uh, prepares. And so I started on his protocol, and fairly quickly I started to feel better. So I used his Chinese herbs for probably six to seven months, and it really pulled me out of the weeds and got about 85% better. So from that, you know, of course, as a naturopath, you know, I realized that, you know, getting over any chronic illness is really a function of, you know, taking care of all the other things like, you know, diet and sleep and lifestyle. And I was basically doing everything and, you know, getting my practice up and running that kind of undermined all that. So while I was doing, you know, the herbal protocol, I was, you know, trying to get better sleep, you know, really focus on taking care of myself. And it really took about, you know, almost three years uh, to get to a point where I, I really got to a point where I was, you know, 100% symptom free. So it was a very long road, but, uh, you know, it was really a personal experience that brought me into the Lyme world. Do you think when you first uh, found the bullseye bite, that if you weren't opening up your own clinic and you weren't going through that stress, then the initial treatment that you were going through would have had more effect for the long term? Absolutely. You know, I think, you know, with chronic Lyme disease, you know, we really have to look at all these other external factors that impact the immune system. You know, again, opening any business is a very stressful time. You know, even if it's something you enjoy doing and you're happy doing it, it does take a, an impact on your, you know, your immune system and your being. So uh, I think the long hours and the stress really started to wear on me. Uh, and it just it, it just came to a point where I, I hit that threshold where my immune system just wasn't handling it anymore. And I'm, I'm quite confident had, had I not been in that situation, I probably would have done the round of antibiotics and, you know, that probably would have been the end of that. So uh, it was all those other, you know, lifestyle things that were going on at the time that probably really, you know, undermined my immune system and led to a relapse. The herbal protocol that you went on, was that tailored specifically for you or was that a protocol that he kind of developed for Lyme? Well, Dr. Zhang has a series of herbal formulas, you know, and in Chinese medicine, they don't really use herbs singly like we do in Western medicine. So all the herbs are formulas and they contain anywhere from three to, I think, 14 herbs in each formula. So he has a series of formulas and, you know, they're really sort of tailored to what symptoms you present with at the time. So it, I would say, yeah, I mean, it was really geared towards what I was experiencing at the time versus a blanket protocol that you just put everybody on. I think the herbs, the herbal formulas do change from person to person. Uh, and during the course of my treatment with him, we did change the herbal formula. So it wasn't like I stayed on the same uh, set of herbs the entire time. You know, as we checked in, you know, every couple of months, 
he would make little adjustments depending on how I was feeling. So I probably actually went through, you know, three or four different combinations of herbal formulas over the course of my treatment with him. Now, for those that don't know how people get Lyme disease, can you talk about the different ways that you can get Lyme and what are some of the early signs to be looking for? Sure. Well, you know, Lyme disease is actually a bacterial infection, and it's a little bit different than when you get a sinus infection or bronchitis. Uh, Lyme disease is generally transmitted through a tick bite, and the tick bites you, and then when it injects its saliva under your skin, it carries this bacteria called Borrelia, and there are several strains of Borrelia that are known to cause Lyme disease. And then once it gets into your bloodstream, it circulates throughout your body, and that triggers this immune reaction, which then can cause really a lot of different symptoms. In fact, if you look at Lyme disease, there's been actually over 100 different symptoms associated with Lyme. But in acute Lyme disease, what we typically see is headache, we see joint pain, and particularly low back pain is very common. Uh, you can get numbness and tingling in your hands, your feet, sometimes your face. You can feel very, very fatigued and tired. You can experience what's called Bell's palsy, where you get sort of paralysis on one half of your face. And of course, the classic symptom is this bullseye rash. They call it erythema migrans. That's the technical name for it. But if you look at the rash itself, it looks like a target or a bullseye. Uh, you can also get swollen lymph, lymph nodes, swollen glands. Uh, and sometimes people complain of sort of, you know, what we call brain fog or memory problems. So those are some of the classic symptoms we see in acute Lyme. Uh, as it progresses into more what we call chronic Lyme, you can still see those same kind of symptoms, but we tend to see more neurological symptoms if it's been there for a longer period of time. So we'll hear about, you know, balance problems, coordination problems. People complain that they feel clumsy. People will feel like that their handwriting has changed. Uh, again, the brain fog tends to get a little bit worse. Memory issues where you know you forget people's names, you forget where you put your car keys. Uh, all of that tends to be very common in chronic Lyme. And in some cases, I mean, can be very debilitating for people. It can affect uh, the nervous system to a point where you can have difficulty walking. You know, some people do end up in wheelchairs uh, as the extreme, but. Fortunately, that degree is, is somewhat rare, but uh, again, you know, there's really over 100 symptoms associated with Lyme. So, you know, I, what I tell people is when you've got this sort of chronic constellation of these symptoms and you've ruled out everything else, it's definitely worth, you know, taking a look at Lyme and seeing if that's part of the problem. So with ticks, typically they burrow themselves into your skin. So after a tick burrows itself, is there a certain time frame that you're still in the safe zone if you remove the tick? Or is it once they bite you, then you're extremely prone to developing Lyme? You know, that's a great question, and it's a bit controversial. You know, I think the standard uh, uh, public health department statement is that, you know, the tick has to be on your skin probably for at least 24 hours or longer to transmit Lyme disease. I think the research has been pretty clear that that's not true and that it's probably far less. And I should qualify, you know, when we talk about Lyme disease, you know, when you get bit by a tick that carries Lyme, these ticks can actually carry a lot of other organisms as well. So there's other bacteria, other viruses that can be transmitted through that, that tick bite. So sometimes when you feel symptomatic, you know, it may not be Lyme. 
it may be Lyme with another organism or another organism by itself. So I, I just think it's important when people are thinking about tick bites and the kind of things you can get. It really extends beyond just, you know, Lyme itself. But uh, yeah, so once, you know, you get bit by that tick, you know, we don't really know what that time frame is. I think there's been some evidence that it could be as little as six hours. And we certainly know with some of these co-infections that that time frame's even shorter. So there probably really is no safe time of having a tick on you. But certainly if you ever see a tick on you, you want to remove it as quickly as possible. There's a lab down in California that you can send the tick in to be tested for Lyme. Would it be testing for the other diseases that uh, ticks can carry as well? Or is it just specifically Lyme? No, typically uh, if someone brings a tick in that they pulled off their body, uh, we go ahead and we test it for Lyme and all of the co-infections just to you know rule out the possibility that that tick might be carrying some other disease. Are there any other little critters that can carry Lyme or is ticks the only resource? Uh, ticks are definitely uh, the lion's share of where people get Lyme, but there is some evidence out of Europe that mosquitoes uh, can potentially transmit Lyme. And there's at least one study I've read that suggests that fleas may also carry Lyme. So, you know, it, it makes sense in a lot of ways that anything that's able to transmit blood uh, has that potential capacity. You know, I've seen people who live in areas that are not endemic to Lyme. They don't really have the kind of ticks that we think of that typically transmit Lyme, and yet they get Lyme disease. So, uh, you know, there may be other vectors that we really haven't identified yet, but definitely, you know, the deer tick is the one that we know uh, is the most common. But again, I think there's some pretty good evidence that there are other insects that may be responsible for transmitting Lyme as well. And you and I talked before that the East Coast was where most ticks were found and where Lyme disease was the most prevalent. But now we're starting to see it a lot more on the West Coast. Can you talk about why that may be? Yeah, you know, uh, well, you know, Lyme disease is actually named after uh, my home state there. It's named after Lyme, Connecticut. And what happened back in the late 70s is there was a group of children that developed what's called juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. And it's a somewhat rare condition in children, yet there was a cluster of kids that had this condition, which was just unusual for the area. So they started investigating it, and it actually took several years for them to identify that there was this bacteria that was causing uh, the condition. So uh, since the cluster of children lived in a town called Lyme, Connecticut, it sort of became known as Lyme disease. Uh, so that's where it originally came from. And the first bacteria that was identified was uh, called Borrelia burgdorferi. Uh, we've now learned since then that there are many other strains of Borrelia that can cause Lyme disease. And as you go around the world, the strain does change. So what we see here on the West Coast, about half of it is now called a Borrelia miyamotai. If you go to Europe, they've got completely different strains. So there's a, a definite geographic change in the strain, you know, from area to area. You know, one of the biggest factors that we think is causing this increase in Lyme disease and really other diseases that are transmitted by insects uh, is climate change. You know, the World Health Organization published a paper not long ago that suggests that the change in climate is accounting for a lot of these insects causing more disease and really because the natural things that would kill off the insect aren't happening. The warmer climate, you know, the ticks, you know, will die off in the dead of winter, but if we have warm winters, 
they don't die off and that population explodes. And in the case of mosquitoes, you know, they need water to reproduce. So the more moisture and water that's around, you know, they're able to reproduce. So when you start putting all these, you know, factors together and changes in climate, it makes a lot of sense that, you know, we just, these, uh, this population of ticks kind of explodes. In addition to that, you know, we know that a lot of the natural predators that would eat the ticks, they're not as prevalent as they used to be. So if you consider the lack of the natural predator and the populations able to expand, you know, the net effect is that we just, you know, see more and more Lyme being spread, certainly throughout the United States, uh, than we did, you know, even a decade ago. A lot of people are being diagnosed right now with Lyme disease, and a lot of people that have been battling their own health issues for a long time are now finally being diagnosed with uh, Lyme disease. And for a long time, they were being misdiagnosed with other diseases. Why did it take so long for us to start coming up with a diagnosis that it's Lyme and not these other issues? Well, again, that's a great question. You know, we have a well, let me backtrack, you know, Lyme disease, they call the great imitator or the great mimic. It looks like a lot of other illnesses. So I think the lack of diagnosis in many cases is that the symptoms are vague in many cases and they look like a lot of other different things. So depending on where you live in the world, you know, again, if you live in Connecticut and you complain of headache and joint pain and fatigue, you know, your doctor is probably likely to test you for Lyme disease. But if you live in Texas, where you know they don't really think of Lyme disease there, your doctor is probably likely to look at mono or some other infection or some other autoimmune disease. And so I think the lack of awareness that you know Lyme looks like a lot of different things sort of leads doctors or other healthcare providers to not look for it. Uh, that's one of the things. And then you know the testing itself has a lot of problems. You know, we always like any test that you do to be really sensitive and very specific, which means, you know, if you actually have the disease, what's the likely that test is going to pick it up? And, you know, my background uh, before I was a doctor is I was a, a microbiologist. I used to do lab testing. And in the lab, you know, a good lab test will be at least 95% sensitive, which means if you have the disease, the test is likely to pick it up. Well, you know, the research suggests that the Lyme test that's used out there is probably only about 43% sensitive. So it doesn't even pick up half the people who actually have the disease. And in the lab world, that's a terrible test. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's not picking up the people that you're trying to pick up. And even then, that test is really only designed for people that have acute Lyme disease. So if you got bit by a tick and, you know, several months or years pass before you even become symptomatic, you know, the likelihood of picking that up on the standard test uh, goes down. So the combination of, you know, poor sensitivity of the test itself, plus the perhaps unawareness of healthcare providers to even do the test, you know, that combination often leads to people getting either misdiagnosed as having something completely different or, you know, just not diagnosed at all. Why is the test so inaccurate? Is it because Lyme is... A mimicker and it mimics so many other diseases or is Lyme just a disease that they haven't put a whole lot of research and focus into especially for testing purposes? Well yeah I don't think there's really been a lot of uh, research uh, certainly from the testing standpoint I mean the test that we're using now is the same test that was developed you know over 30 years ago it really hasn't changed so uh, 
yeah, there, there hasn't really been a lot of money dumped into advancing our understanding of, of Lyme. Part of the problem we run into, again, is because there are several different strains of Lyme, you know, the testing would have to be developed in a way that looks at potentially all the strains. Now, in saying that, there is actually a lab that just started about uh, a little less than a year ago that actually did identify a specific genetic sequence in the Borrelia organism that does look at all Borrelia strains. So I think that kind of test has a better capacity of identifying people who had Lyme. But the Lyme test itself is an antibody test. And if you think about it, if you get bit by a tick that carries uh, the Lyme organism, the appropriate immune response is that you'll make antibodies. So having antibodies by itself doesn't necessarily dictate that you have Lyme disease. All it suggests to us is that you've had exposure to the Lyme organism. And I'm sure there are people out there who get bit by a tick, their immune system does what it's supposed to do, it gets rid of the organism before it ever really causes symptoms, uh, and, and the, but they don't have Lyme disease. But if you look at their blood test, you know, you'll see antibodies there. And some of the research suggests, you know, that antibodies can stay elevated for 20 years after exposure, even in people who've been treated. So it certainly doesn't become a very reliable marker in treatment to see how well you're doing. So we haven't found a great way to really identify the organism directly in the body. All the testing that's available right now is either done through antibody testing or done through what they call PCR testing, which stands for polymerase chain reaction. And again, this is a way that's just looking at small sequences in the genetic code that you can pick up in blood and urine and other body fluids. But it's not telling us the whole story about what's there, how much is there, how active it is. All it suggests is that there's been exposure. So we, we, we still have a gap in our knowledge on testing and finding better ways to help identify this bug. If someone with really poor health gets bit by a tick that's carrying Lyme disease and their immune system is suppressed, would that then prevent the body from creating the antibodies needed to fight the Lyme disease and therefore the Lyme would take off and proliferate a lot faster? Absolutely. And, you know, this has been a problem for anybody who has either a genetic or an acquired immune deficiency is that antibody testing as a whole really becomes worthless. So the assumption, again, is that if you get bit by a tick that carries Lyme, you're going to have a very strong immune response. And while that may be the case for a majority of people, it certainly isn't the case for all the people. So anyone whose immune system might be compromised, if they're on any kind of medication that suppresses their immune system, like steroids, uh, it's highly likely that your antibody tests are going to look negative just because you don't make the proper immune response. And again, you know, th that never really gets accounted for when uh, doctors are, are testing people in many cases. So, but that's, that's a very important point that people need to consider. And a lot of people that are getting diagnosed with Lyme, they also have a lot of other autoimmune uh, diseases that they've been diagnosed with. So do you think Lyme is feeding into these other autoimmune issues or how are they related? Yeah, you know, uh, in my new book, I, I talk about this a lot, but uh, my argument is that uh, Lyme, you know, is initially an infection, but the longer it stays in your body, the greater capacity it has to trigger an autoimmune reaction. And there's actually some good research showing that Lyme actually does this. So this is actually a pretty, uh, 
pretty well studied. And we know this happens with other organisms too. I mean, this is not unique to Lyme disease. You know, strep can cause rheumatic fever, rheumatic heart disease. We know that, you know, another bacteria called Klebsiella is associated with rheumatoid arthritis. So there's a, a concept in immunology we call molecular mimicry. And what that means is that there are certain molecules on the surface of bacteria mostly, but in some cases viruses, that actually mimic proteins that are in our own tissue. So as the immune system tries to fight the organism, it accidentally starts attacking our own tissue. Now, in the case of, you know, rheumatoid arthritis that can attack the joints, or in the case of lupus that can attack multiple tissues, you know, Lyme is a little bit different and it looks different, but uh, Lyme particularly tends to target certain proteins in the nervous system. And that's why I think we tend to see a lot more neurological symptoms in, in certainly chronic Lyme, uh, but that, that capacity to confuse, you know, the organism for our own tissue. Plus, the organism itself is very stealthy. It has the ability to burrow into a lot of different tissues, and I think that sensitizes that tissue to the organism. And again, as the immune system's trying to get rid of the organism, it accidentally starts affecting that, that tissue or organ. So, you know, this, this whole concept of molecular mimicry, again, there's a lot of research on it on various organisms, but I think it well explains why Lyme triggers this autoimmune kind of problem. And at the beginning of this episode, you were talking that uh, Lyme is bacterial by nature. Therefore, is it possible to completely get rid of it, or is it going to stay within your system hiding and have flare-ups whenever, let's say, you get into a stressful situation or some other triggers? It's a great question. The, the honest truth is we don't know. Because we're measuring antibodies, we're not measuring the organism directly, we don't have a way to really find out what's still there. My opinion and my experience personally as a Lyme patient and then having treated thousands of Lyme patients is I don't think we ever get rid of it. I think, you know, it's kind of like if you get chicken pox as a five-year-old, you can get shingles as a 55-year-old. And it's the same virus that stays in your body for 50 years. But something happens in your immune system, it starts to tank, and then you get a shingles outbreak. I think Lyme becomes an organism that our body learns to live with, and we, we live with each other without bothering each other. Uh, but whether we get rid of the organism 100%, I'm not sure that that happens. Do we know what Lyme feeds off of within the body and the tissues? Uh, well, not specifically. I mean, you know, most bacteria feed off various carbohydrates. Uh, that's, you know, when you grow out bacteria and culture, you know, we grow it out on stuff called auger, which is kind of like gelatin. And there's a lot of nutrients that feed into it, but they all tend to be very rich in carbohydrate. Uh, that helps the organism proliferate. So it's logical to expect that Lyme probably has a similar mechanism as other bacteria. But, uh, uh, I don't know if there's any one specific uh, nutrient or nutrients that, that's unique to Lyme that, that might be different from other bacteria. Now, since you are a Lyme patient yourself and you've seen that the traditional treatment did not work for you, therefore you went with the herbal options, that's helped you to develop your own treatment process for Lyme disease. Can you walk us through what a treatment process with you would look like? Sure. You know, it really starts uh, at the foundation of the immune system, which is the gut. 
you know, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, your gut accounts for about 80% of your immune function. So if your gut's not functioning well, it's very hard for your immune system to function well. So anyone who's got any history of gastrointestinal problems, whether it's chronic constipation, diarrhea, IBS, you know, we want to make sure that the gut is, is doing what it's supposed to do. If you're eliminating well, digesting well, you have a better chance of absorbing your nutrients and you know getting your immune system to work as optimally as possible. So that's really kind of step one. Step two is we really start targeting the organism itself. And although I just said, you know, I'm not sure that we completely get rid of the organism 100%, we can certainly do things to bring the load of the organism down. If we believe that the Lyme bacteria is triggering an autoimmune problem, if we can lower that burden on the body, there's just less stuff for the immune system to react to. So this is where I think herbs can be very effective. And what I like about the different herbs out there is that they seem to be effective at lowering the load of Lyme without necessarily disrupting a lot of your normal flora in your gut. You know, there's so much research coming out on our microbiome, you know, all of our gut flora, which is comprised of, you know, trillions and trillions of organisms and hundreds, if not thousands of different species of, you know, viruses, bacteria, fungi, and even parasites. So we want to try and minimize any kind of damage to the gut because as we disrupt that gut ecology, again, it potentially makes it harder for the immune system to do what we want to do. So we fix the gut. Then we move on to treating the active infections with, you know, I typically use herbs, and there are numerous herbal protocols out there. Uh, I've primarily used two different herbal protocols. As I mentioned, I use Dr. Zhang's herbs. Uh, I've also used a modified version of Dr. Uh, Cowden. Uh, Dr. Lee Cowden uh, was a cardiologist in Dallas. Uh, he's retired now. But uh, he's developed a series of liquid tinctures that all come from the Amazon rainforest that uh, have actually been studied by a doctor at the University of New Haven. Her name's Dr. Eva Sappy. She herself had Lyme. Uh, she's a researcher. And so she's done a lot of research on his herbs and has found that they're actually more effective than the antibiotics. So, you know, sometimes people get concerned about using herbs versus antibiotics. And gosh, if I don't use antibiotics, am I potentially harming myself? Uh, but again, she's demonstrated that the herbs are clinically effective and again, just have a less damage to the body. So those are the two protocols I've used, but there are many, many others that again are effective. And uh, it's not that one's better than the other. Some people just do well or do better with one than they do over another. So targeting the infection is really the second step. You know, the third step is really about diet. And I found that there are several diets that people have tried. The one that I found seems to be most effective for Lyme patients is what I call an alkaline diet. And what that means is about eating foods that help promote better uh, pH in the body. We know that most of our cells function best at an alkaline pH, yet most of what the standard American diet consists of makes the body very acidic. And acid ultimately leads to inflammation. So by eating an alkaline diet, we're shifting away from that pro-inflammatory phase to more of an anti-inflammatory phase. And you know, if someone's not familiar with an alkaline diet, essentially what it is, it's a mostly vegetarian diet where you limit your animal protein intake to about 20% of your total intake. And that's just because animal protein breaks down into certain uh, nitro nitrogen forms that tend to be very acidic. Uh, 
So it's not that we eliminate it completely from the diet, but we do try and limit that intake. So mostly vegetarian, limited uh, animal protein intake. And then there's certain things that we know just tend to be very acidic. So we have people eliminate dairy. We haven't eliminate gluten. We haven't eliminate certainly any processed or refined, you know, foods and sugars. Uh, and the one that kills most people is coffee. <laughs> you know, I love coffee personally, but I know if I drink a little coffee, it uh, makes me feel a lot worse. So coffee is very acidic. And uh, I'm sorry for all the coffee drinkers out there. But if you have lime, it's something that definitely can uh, make it difficult to get better. So that, that kind of composes the dietary part. You know, step four is we start looking at all the other uh, lifestyle factors that impact your immune system. So that's where we look at, you know, sleep. Most of the Lyme patients I work with, you know, don't tend to sleep very well. They don't sleep deeply. So we really work on various things, whether it's through, you know, nutritional supplements, uh, meditation, sleep pattern, whatever it is to get you more restful, deeper quality of sleep. You know, this is where all your, your neurons regenerate is when you're in a deep sleep. So if you're missing that part of your your life, it's just going to make it harder to get your body to regenerate, repair itself. So that is probably the one piece that gets really overlooked in Lyme treatment. Uh, but I would argue that beyond you know healing the gut, that probably is the second most important thing in recovering from Lyme disease. And then you know the last part of it is really looking at just other external toxins and toxicants that can become immune disruptors. So we talk a lot about you know cleaning up your home environment, your work environment, getting rid of all the chemicals that are you know endocrine disruptors. Uh, the one thing that I, I find probably most closely mimics Lyme disease is mold. Uh, mold toxicity and mold allergy can cause a lot of symptoms that if you wrote all the symptoms side by side, there's a tremendous amount of overlap. And, you know, me living in Connecticut and you living in Seattle, you know, we're both in areas where there's just a ton of mold. And many people who have mold exposure are unaware of it. So we talk a lot about, you know, getting your home environment tested for mold, sometimes, you know, testing you to find out if you have mold allergy. And the difference uh, for people who don't know, mold toxicity is there are certain molds that secrete uh, what are called mycotoxins that when you breathe them in, they can directly damage your nervous system and your respiratory tract, where mold allergy is an immune reaction to mold spores. So there are different mechanisms, but the end result is that, again, it can make you feel tired, it can give you headaches, it can cause inflammation, it can cause brain fog. So again, there's a, a lot of overlap. And I would say in my patient population, probably more than 80% of people with Lyme disease also have either mold toxicity or mold allergy. So, you know, making sure that we're taking care of that because the treatment is quite different. Uh, that's an important part of, you know, taking that burden off the immune system. And, and also an important part really is just detoxifying as a whole. Uh, but you know, if we can get control of all these other things out there in the environment, uh, it just gives your immune system, you know, a better fighting chance. I know all too well the feeling of being brought down by mold. I've suffered from a lot of mold issues a couple years ago. So now that I know that it is very similar to what it's like to go through Lyme, I feel really bad for all of those that have been suffering from Lyme disease. 
Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's interesting because, you know, I, I also have an office here in Southern California, which we don't typically think of being a fairly moldy area because, you know, it really doesn't get a lot of rain. But I find uh, a lot of people here who've had mold issues and, you know, in places like, you know, Arizona, California, that don't necessarily get a lot of rain or, or humidity, you know, when you get leaks in your home, often you're unaware of it. So I've had patients who've had leaks behind their refrigerator, a faucet that leaks, something in their bathroom. You know, where I live in Connecticut, everybody has a basement. So, you know, when there's a water leak, you know, gravity does its thing. And eventually that water ends up in the basement and you see it. You know, out here in California, there are no basements because there's earthquakes. So everything's built on a slab. So when there's water, instead of going into a basement, it'll leak into another wall. It'll leak to maybe even outside of the house to areas that people just don't see and they're unaware of. So, you know, don't think just because you live in an area that necessarily doesn't have a lot of moisture that mold can't be a possibility. So if you've been dealing with chronic Lyme uh, and you're uh, suspicious, uh, it's never a bad idea to uh, have a professional company come in, test your home just to make sure because that would take you down a very different treatment path, but ultimately can be undermining your immune system and making it more difficult to overcome Lyme. And for those up here in Washington, I've always been really cautious about the houses built out here because they build all year long, all year long. So right. it's, it's raining right now and you can go down the road and there's houses that aren't covered up and they're just getting soaked. And I highly doubt that these developers are going through and, <laughs> demoldifying everything. I highly doubt it. And you know, I find that most contractors are really not aware of mold. Uh, and certainly if you find that you do have mold in your home, you would definitely want someone who is very knowledgeable about mold remediation because mold remediation done wrong can just make that problem a thousand times worse. So if you ever do find that you've got a mold issue, make sure that you work with a company that specializes in mold remediation and don't just call your regular general contractor because they're likely to not do a very good job on it. Now in step one, you were talking about having a, a fully functioning GI tract that's functioning properly, which many Americans on the standard American diet are having issues there. And you also talked about healing up the gut lining. So can you talk about what that process is to make sure that the GI tract is functioning properly? Sure. So when we talk about a well-functioning GI tract or gastrointestinal tract, we're really talking about your body's ability to digest the food that you're eating and eliminating properly. So in a perfect world, which by the way, we almost never see, you know, I, if you compare us, I guess, to the rest of the animal kingdom, you know, 20 minutes after an animal eats, it generally poops. And ideally, humans would do the same thing. So if you're eating three times a day, ideally, you would have a bowel movement three times a day. Now, I rarely, rarely see that. So I think, you know, for the average human, you know, once to twice a day is pretty good. But look, I see some people who, you know, they go to the bathroom once a week and their doctor tells them that's perfectly normal. I can tell you it is not perfectly normal. <laughs> that's very abnormal. That's constipation. So what happens is then as you're not eliminating all these uh, toxins as they, you know, get reabsorbed through the gut into the bloodstream, into the surrounding tissue, and that toxicity can really affect the way that the cells function. So, you know, what we really want to shoot for is getting people eliminating at least daily, again, if not twice a day. And when you have a bowel movement, I mean, it should be soft, it shouldn't be hard to pass, it should be well-formed so it doesn't fall apart in little pieces and it's not hard balls. Uh, it should be, you know, 
easy to pass and well formed. So that's kind of our ideal, you know, uh, elimination pattern. And people shouldn't be having lots of gas and lots of belching. You know, that suggests to us that they're not digesting their food well, uh, or they're they've got some disruption in their gut that they're fermenting the wrong stuff, and that's what's creating some of the gas. So again, in a perfect world, there's no gas, there's no bloating. You eat your food, you eliminate, you know, once or twice a day. And that's a pretty good indication that your digestive tract is working well. A lot of people don't understand what excessive gas or excessive bloating is, and they might not be paying that much attention to uh, their pooping. How can you communicate to people what a dysfunctional GI tract would be like and give off some symptoms that they might be having that would indicate that it's not functioning properly other than just gas or um, pooping once a week? Sure. So abdominal pain is probably the most common thing. You know, if you push on your belly and it hurts, that suggests that there's some level of inflammation. You know, the belly should be soft, you know, even after you've eaten, it might be a little bit more full, but it shouldn't hurt. So when people complain about chronic abdominal pain, chronic cramping, particularly when they have a bowel movement, again, stool that's difficult to pass, uh, nausea, uh, people who vomit repeatedly, uh, all of that can be signs that, you know, something in your gut isn't functioning well. Great. Can you talk about your book that you have coming out, The Lyme Solution, a five-part plan to fight the inflammatory autoimmune response and beat Lyme disease? Sure. So, you know, I wrote this book, uh, obviously, as a Lyme patient myself. I went through many of the same things that other Lyme patients are going through or have gone through. And, you know, having been in practice now for almost 20 years, seeing thousands of Lyme patients, you know, I've had the experience of seeing what what worked for people, what didn't work for people. So uh, I wanted to write a book that really uh, was something that people with Lyme disease can do uh, on their own. You know, the nice thing about this book is that it really is a step-by-step -step guide that anyone with Lyme can sit down and 90% of this book you can do on your own. You know, I, I, I talk about all the specific details, you know, even with specific supplements, you know, here's the dose recommended, here's how to take it. I've only got really one chapter in the book about therapies that I use that really need to be medically supervised. And so you'll need a doctor for those specific therapies. But uh, really the book itself is, as I mentioned earlier, it's that five steps on, you know, diet, gut health, uh, different herbal protocols to treat your Lyme, dealing with your home environment, including mold and toxins, you know, how to exercise when you're completely exhausted, how to get better sleep. So I really wanted this to be a, a nice tool bag so that anyone with Lyme can pick up, thumb through, and uh, get some very clear guidance on how to get over Lyme, because this is what worked for me. This is how I got over my Lyme, and I think, you know, uh, this is what can help other people, you know, have similar success. When and where can the book be found? So the book uh, officially comes out on March 27th of this year, 2018. Uh, it is available online for pre-order. So you can go to your favorite uh, online retailer. You can go to Amazon. You can go to Barnes & Noble. Uh, all of the, the big online retailers have the book available for pre-order. Uh, if you go to our website, which is darreninglesnd.com, uh, we also have information about the book. Uh, you can check it out there. But uh, yeah, it's available for pre-order now. 
And I'll have all those links on my show notes so that people have direct access straight to the waitlist for the Lime Solution book. Where else can people find you on the internet? Yeah, so my website is the best place. And as I mentioned, it's Darren Ingalls, N-D, and my name is D-A-R-I-N-I-N-G-E-L-S-N-D.com. And uh, we'd love for people to uh, sign up to follow us. Uh, we send out regular newsletters. I've got a lot of information about Lyme disease and immune function. So we'd love for people to follow us uh, on our various social media platforms because, you know, we want to be there to help uh, everybody get through their journey. Uh, I've actually got a private Facebook group that's going to be starting very soon. So people will be able to sign up for that. And we'll have a lot more direct interaction. And I'm, I'll be active on that, answering questions. So that for people who have specific uh, questions or comments, uh, I'll be happy to help you know answer those. Awesome. And what social media channels do you have? I'm guessing Facebook and what else? Uh, we have Facebook, Instagram. Uh, I have a YouTube channel that's launching very shortly. Uh, we're on Pinterest. So... All of the big ones. All the major ones. Awesome, Darren. I appreciate you coming on to talk about Lyme disease. There's a lot of great information that you brought forward, especially on a, a disease that we don't really have a whole lot of strong treatments for. So I'm glad that you were able to bring forward some treatment options for people. Oh, great. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate being here. For many of you outdoor folks like myself, Contracting Lyme disease is a very real issue, and that's why I want to let you guys know of some places to get the ticks tested. So if you're out and about outside and you find a tick on yourself, one of the best things you can do is to remove the tick and send it to one of these labs to see if it has Lyme. Now, it's not 100% accurate as we heard, but at least it gives you some ideas whether there is a potential chance that you contracted Lyme or other pathogens, and that way you know how to start treating yourself right away. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate you going to iTunes and leaving us a rating and review. Those really do help us to get out in front of more people. So if you go to summitforwellness.com slash iTunes, that will take you right to the page to leave us a rating and review. And we will see you next time.